The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. I invite you to open your Bibles to Judges 14 as we continue our journey through the story of the final major judge in this book, Samson. And he's the judge that you may feel like you know the most about, like no judge from this book gets talked about more in Sunday school classes than, than Samson. And, and why not? Like, he gets the most paid space of any judge in this whole book. Uh, and perhaps that's because he has the most potential. I mean, is that not what we saw last week through the fact that even his birth was miraculous and divinely announced? Like, like no other judge was set apart from the womb like like that. No other judge was called to be a Nazarite, avoiding alcohol and corpses and not cutting your hair so that everyone knew that you were consecrated to God. And no other judge will be supernaturally gifted like Samson will be. I mean, if you only know one thing about Samson, then you know he was gifted with supernatural what? Strength. He's, he's like the Bible's Hercules, right? Like ripping apart lions, tearing down city gates, knocking down buildings. There's, there's lots to talk about when you talk about Samson. And so we tend to be very positive about him and we make all these chapters about him and his strength. But, but Shades, that totally misses the mark. Because these chapters, they're not about Samson's strength. They're about God's strength. It, it is actually Samson's weakness that gets put on display as he's portrayed to us rather negatively in order that we might be blown away by the strength of God's grace. You see, here's the deal. Samson is not the only judge or the only savior present in these chapters. There are two saviors here that we need to see. One that helps us see ourselves, and one that helps us see our salvation. So, this morning, let's look at those two saviors one at a time. First, let's look at the one who helps us see ourselves, the one that we are quickest to see. Let's look at Samson, the self-centered Savior. See him with me. Judges 14. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and he told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. But his father and his mother said to him, uh, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. What a gem. <laughs> like, like right out of the gate, <laughs> Samson is portrayed to us rather Negatively, and I, I think there are two primary things we're meant to see right here. First, Samson's comfortability with the enemy. Samson's comfortability with the enemy. The Philistines rule over Israel at this time, and Samson's calling is to help set Israel free from the Philistines, but apparently he'd rather hang out with them. Like he goes to Timnah, a Philistine city, to, to just chill, apparently. Not only that, while he's there, he sets his sights on a young lady. So, so instead of fighting with the enemy, he decides to marry the enemy. Samson is incredibly comfortable with the enemy. And right here, here's the second thing that we need to see, namely Samson's self-centered morality, his self-centered morality. He sees a Philistine woman and he decides he wants her for a wife. Why? Because she is right 
in my eyes. That's what he said. She is right in my, see a self-centered morality? Like, like this woman isn't right in God's eyes. No, she's right in my eyes. In other words, according to my standards of, of what I think will satisfy me. Like Samson has put himself in the center of his life, the place that only God deserves. And now Samson gets to decide what is right and wrong in his life as he sees it. Forget the fact that Yahweh had forbid marrying someone outside of the covenant. Forget the fact that his parents pointed that out. No, no one gets to tell Samson what to do. He's his own king. He does his own thing. And in doing so, he is embodying what is true of all of God's people at this time. I mean, this is exactly how the entire book of Judges will end, echoing this refrain. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone lived as their own king. Samson is embodying that reality. Like, like as a judge, he is truly representative of the people and that he reflects precisely what they are like. And he does so not just through his self-centered morality, but also through his comfortability with the enemy. That was true of Israel too. Samson's marriage to a Philistine woman, it's a reflection of the state of God's people. They were supposed to drive out the Philistines, but instead they had accepted them as rulers. They'd become comfortable with their culture. They'd embraced their idolatry. It, it was like they had married the enemy. And Samson's story forces us to ask the question, have we? In Samson, the people were meant to see a reflection of themselves. And he's meant to help us see ourselves, to help us see, have we become comfortable with the enemy? Like, like in other words, have we laid aside our distinctiveness as the people of God in order to be accepted by the surrounding culture? James 4 and verse 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Why is that true, James? It's because that involves a fundamental swapping of allegiances. God, throughout Scripture, compares his relationship with his people to a marriage relationship and James right here says you swap your allegiances, you become an adulterous people when you become, you know, when you give your allegiance to, to the world. You, you practically married the enemy, which inevitably leads to a self-centered morality, doing what is right in your own eyes. We've got to ask, is this true of us? Like when we look at our lives, do we seek to live doing what's right in our own eyes? Or God's? Do, do we live as our own king? Or with Christ as king? Samson is here to help us see. And Shades, this, this is just the beginning because Samson right here, he is on a downward trajectory. Our author makes sure that we feel that through the very structure of this story. Like both on a book level and on a, on a chapter level. So on, on a book level, the structure of all the major judges has been a downward 
journey. One of the ways our author wants us to see that is by comparing the first major judge and our last major judge. I know he wants us to make that comparison because these are the only two judges where we're told about their marriages. And our first judge, Othniel, he was portrayed as the, if you, if you remember back that far, he was portrayed as the ideal judge who married the ideal Israelite woman, Caleb's daughter, Aksa. And compare that with Samson, the most self-centered judge who literally marries the enemy. Do, do we not see the downward trajectory? And, and not just on the book level, on, the, on a chapter level too. Just, just look at the opening words of chapter 14. Chapter 14 and verse 1 starts out, Samson went down. Like our author is going to use that phrase. That going down phrase, he's going to use it five times to structure this chapter. In other words, it's not just a geographical note. It's a notice of where the story is headed. Like we're meant to be, to feel as we journey through the story, we're meant to feel like we're being pulled downward. We're meant to feel the weight of what's happening. We're seeing Samson on a downward trajectory of being a self-centered savior. That downward journey continues in verse 5. Look at it. Then Samson went down. He went down with his father and his mother to Timnah. And they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and he talked with the woman. And she was right in Samson's eyes. So Samson and his parents make a trip to Timnah to make wedding arrangements. And for some reason, on that trip, Samson ventures near vineyards. Now, why? But a Nazarite who's forbidden from messing with the fruit of the vine, why would he want to spend any time in a vineyard? It's almost like he doesn't take his Nazarite vow seriously. In fact, that is the first of two things I think we're meant to see right here. Namely, first, number one, Samson doesn't take sin seriously. Samson doesn't take sin seriously. He, he not only wanders into vineyards right here, but when he's attacked and kills the lion, he doesn't tell his parents. That's specifically pointed out to us. Why? Because as a Nazarite, he wasn't supposed to touch anything dead. And if he told his parents, then they probably would have wanted to reroute their journey to the tabernacle for a cleansing ritual. And I can imagine Samson didn't want to be delayed. His sights were set on the woman who was right in his own eyes. Besides, this wasn't really a big deal. Do you see? He doesn't see the seriousness of sin. That's because of the second thing that we're meant to see right here. Namely, Samson is blind spiritually. He doesn't take sin seriously. And secondly, Samson is blind spiritually. But what I mean is that right here we see Samson's first feat of strength. Okay, there's going to be 10 throughout his story. There'll be 10 feats of strength in all. We're going to see five today in chapters 14 and 15, which are all about Samson and in his actions in and around or related to Timnah. And then 
next time, chapter 16, is going to be all about Samson and his actions in and around or related to Gaza, and we'll see five feats of strength there. But right here, we not only see his first feat of strength, but we also see its source. Did you catch that? Verse 6. Verse 6 said, The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. God is empowering Samson. God is showing him what he will do. I I, I think this is what we're meant to see right here. God is showing Samson what he will do through him to the Philistines. Slay the enemy effortlessly. In other words, like God can tear a young lion like it's a a goat, like like shredding a rotisserie chicken from Costco or something like that. It's, It's easy. And he can empower Samson. If he can do that, then he can empower Samson to defeat the Philistines easily. Set the people free. That's what I think God is showing Samson he will do through him. But Samson doesn't see. He's blind spiritually. He he doesn't see the source of his strength or what it's for. Again, he's, he's reflecting realities that are true of all Israel. He's embodying God's people. God's people don't take their sin seriously at this time. Why? Because they're blind spiritually. And that leads us to ask the question, are we? Do we take sin seriously or are we blind spiritually? Those those questions are pressed home to us as both of these truths, not taking sin seriously, being blind spiritually, both of those truths get emphasized again through the rest of the lion incident. Look at verses eight and nine. Samson and his parents, they make the trip to Timnah again. This time it's for the actual marriage festival, the one they'd gone down there to plan. And as they make this trip down for the actual marriage festival, Samson turns aside to check out the lion carcass and to, to admire his strength again, even if it means going near a corpse, because he doesn't take sin seriously. He will actually touch the corpse. Uh, he, he, he touches it because in it, he sees a community of beast, not a swarm. There's a Hebrew word for swarm. I don't, I don't care that the ESV translates it swarm. This is not the Hebrew word for swarm. This is the Hebrew. It's an odd word to use in connection with bees. It's the Hebrew word for community. We'll talk about why that word is used in just a minute. But he sees a community of bees. They've taken up residence in this carcass and made some honey, and he wants some to eat. First, ew. But second, again, we see that Samson is blind spiritually. Because this, this peculiar image, I think this is why the word community is used here, to show us what this is an image of. This peculiar image, I think it's a picture of what God aims to do through Samson's strength. Namely, make his people into a community that will be a source of sweetness amidst a world of death and decay. But that's not what Samson sees. He just sees some honey for his hungry belly. He doesn't see. He doesn't take sin seriously. And he becomes unclean by taking some honey. And he actually gives some to his parents without telling them where it came from. The the effects of his sin, in other words, are, are spreading. And that's what we see throughout the rest of chapters 14 and 15. Like, like I, I wish we had time to go through all the details of this, but allow me to sum it up for you the best I 
at Cannes. Samson, he, he goes and he throws this wedding feast. It's actually, it's a seven-day drinking festival. That's the specific Hebrew word used to describe it. Apparently, he's becoming more bold in his sin, as this is obviously an open violation of his Nazarite vow to stay away from fruit of the vine. So he throws this drinking festival, and, and at this feast, he makes a riddle about the lion and the honey, and he, and he bets 30 Philistines that they can't solve his riddle. If they do, he'll, he'll give them 30 sets of fine clothes. If, if they don't, they've got to give him 30 sets of fine clothes. This is a, a hefty bet right here. So when they can't figure it out, they, they kind of go into panic mode and they threaten Samson's new bride. They're like, hey, we need you to manipulate him. Do whatever you got to do. Get the answer out of him. Or we will burn you and your father alive. Obviously, she's going to do what they're saying. So she does her darndest to, to reveal, to, to get Samson to, to reveal his, the answer to the riddle and and as she does this, it actually reveals Samson's biggest weakness, women. She gets the answer out of him. She passes it on to the 30 men. They solve the riddle. And guess who's just a little bit ticked? This chapter that began with Samson burning with passion for this woman, it ends with him burning with anger. And he goes to a neighboring city, and in a second feat of strength, the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him, and he slaughters 30 Philistines, steals their clothes, pays his gambling debt, and goes home in a huff. Like, the downward trajectory of chapter 14 is complete. But that's actually only the beginning. Because chapter 15, it... It's structured very similarly. Not, it, it isn't structured by the verb to go down. No, it's structured by the verb to do. We get a five, just like we got a five-fold repetition of to go down in chapter 14, we get a five-fold repetition of to do in chapter 15. And, and this verb to do, it always has to do with retaliation, revenge. In other words, the, the downward journey of chapter 14, it just set the stage for the revenge and the retaliation of chapter 15 that, that will grow and grow from Samson's personal vendetta to a full-on national crisis. That's what we see. Read with me, chapter 15 and verse 1. After some days, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a, a young goat. It's like the ancient version of taking a box of chocolates, I guess. And, and he said to himself, he says, uh, I will go down, uh, or no, excuse me, I will go in uh, to my wife in the chamber. And yes, that means what you think it means. Uh, but her father would not allow him to go in. Now, before you start thinking he's a, a good father, keep reading. And her father said I, to Samson, I, I really thought that you utterly hated her. Uh, so I gave her to your companion. <laughs> it's is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, yeah, we got a father of the year right here, right? And Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do, here's our verb, when I do them harm. And what does he do? In feet of strength number three, 
Homeboy effortlessly catches 300 foxes, ties them tail to tail with a torch between them, lights them up, and lets them loose in the, the wheat fields. Remember our opening verse in chapter 15 tells us this is the time of the, the, the wheat harvest. You, you got to know right here, the Philistines' primary god was Dagon, the god of grain. Like they were a wheat-based society and literally have, have like their whole economy growing right now out of the ground and, and Samson just burns it all. Like this would be economically devastating. And so they retaliate. They blame Samson's wife and father-in-law and burn them alive, ironically. Remember her, her getting Samson's answer to the riddle telling them that was to save her and her father from being burned alive, but it's that very set of events that actually leads to them being burned alive. Philistines are basically saying to Samson, burn our wheat and we'll burn your wife. And this fire of retaliation does what it always does. It just continues to spread. Look at verse 7. And then Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. After that, I will, I will quit. Yeah, right. And a, fourth and, and a fourth feat of strength, he goes and he slaughters even more Philistines. Foolishly believing right here, as he said, foolishly believing that, that this act will put the, that, that an act of violence will put an end to the cycle of violence. But when you fight fire with fire, that fire just grows bigger and bigger. So he retaliates, and the Philistines retaliate again. They retaliate by putting together an entire army to invade Judah and take Samson captive. And so as they invade Judah, the people of Judah are like, wait, 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 wait. Why are you dragging us into this? Look at verse 10. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? The Philistines said, we've come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. Old Testament scholar Daniel Block says, uh, here is the heart of Philistine ethics. Do unto others as they have done unto you. We're, we're here to do to him as he did to us. And this, this is the moment. It's, it's in this moment that we see just how comfortable God's people have become with their enemies. It's in this moment where we see just how much they've married into the same mindset. Because Judah right here puts its own army together, but not to fight the Philistines. No, to go and arrest Samson and hand him over to them. Why? Verse 11. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock at Edom, and they said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you've done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so I have done to them. Do you see? Do you see how comfortable God's people have grown with their enemies? Like, Shades, these are the men of Judah. Back in Judges chapter one, they were the first to go up and fight against the enemy. But look at their downward trajectory. They're no longer in conflict with the enemy. They want to keep things comfortable. Do you not know, Samson, the Philistines rule over? What are you doing? Why are you, why are you bothering the status quo? These are the people we've seen Samson embody. 
And he does so even now by being married to the Philistines' mindset. Did you catch that? Samson said, as they did to me, so I have done unto them. I do unto others as they've done unto me. That, that, is, the mind, that, that is the mindset that the Philistines articulated just a moment ago. That This man is a savior for no one but himself. Truly we've seen he is a self-centered savior. And that's what plays out in the closing scene of chapter 15. Samson lets the men of Judah tie him up and turn him over to the Philistines, but here we see a fifth feat of strength. Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson, and he, he snaps the ropes like melting flax, and he, he picks up a donkey's jawbone and just goes to town John Wick style. I mean, it is headshot after headshot after headshot until he makes a mound of corpses and sings a song to celebrate himself. Verse 16, with the jawbone of a donkey heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. He literally names the pile of bodies Jawbone Hill. And then, and then he does something odd, something we haven't seen before. For the first time in this story, Samson prays. He calls upon the Lord. Look at verse 18. Samson was thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? This is interesting to me. Every other feat of strength he's done has seemed effortless. But this one, this one apparently takes it out of Samson. I'm about to die of thirst. Why? Could it be? Could it be to finally force him to see he's not the only Savior in this story? Could it, could it be to force him to see the source of his strength and what it's supposed to be for? Could it be to help us see even more than Samson sees? I mean, he does. He does see a little bit. He finally acknowledges God is the one granting this great salvation. But a salvation for who? just for Samson himself. He's a self-centered savior and all of his acts of salvation have been for himself. That's all he can see. But when we, when we step back shades and we take a, a, a look at the second savior in this story, I think that we see a salvation that can truly be called great. Oh, shades, shades. See with me the savior who shows us our salvation. Let's look at Secondly, number two, let's look at Yahweh, the self-centered, selfless Savior. And yes, you heard me say that right. Yahweh, the self-centered, selfless Savior. What, what, what do I mean by that? To see what I mean, let's go all the way back to the beginning. Actually, let's go before the beginning of the story we started in today. Let's go, let's go to the last verse of chapter 13. Judges 13, verse 25. It says this. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir Samson in Mahana Dan between Zorah and Eshtaol. Samson went down to Timnah 
And at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Why did Samson go down to Timnah? Ignore the chapter break. Like, why did he go? God. God stirred Samson. God got him to go to Timnah. God set in motion this entire series of events. Don't believe me? Just, just look down a few verses. Look at chapter 14 and verse 4. This is a verse that we skipped, and every scholar agrees this verse is the key to this entire story. This is, this is right after Samson has demanded his parents arrange his marriage to a Philistine. Right after that, this is what we read. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. In other words, God is sovereignly working right here through Samson's stupidity. He is sovereignly working through Samson's sin for his own ends. What, what are those ends? He, God, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Well, that seems rather selfish. Like God is just using Samson to accomplish his own ends. Like, like God wants victory over the Philistines for his own glory, so he's gonna use Samson for that. Like, what's going on here? Are we just trading one self-centered savior for another? Yes and no. Yes, because God is a self-centered savior. And no, because his, his self-centeredness is nothing like Samson's. What do I mean? Stay with me. Let me unpack this. God is the only one for whom it is right to be self-centered. My, my mother, when I was being selfish, she used to tell me all the time, you're not at the center of the universe, Jonathan. But God is. He is at the center of the universe. He he is at the center. He is the greatest one there is. Everything should center on him, including himself. And he does it. He centers on himself in the most mind-blowing way because he does it selflessly. Scripture teaches us that our God is triune, one God eternally existing in three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father selflessly loves the Son. The Son selflessly loves the Father. They do this in and through the Holy Spirit, all selflessly working for one another's glory. God is simultaneously self-centered and selfless. It just melts my brain. He, he is the only one for whom that is right. He's the only one who can do it selflessly. And, and it isn't just right, it's, it's good shades. It's not just right for God to be self-centered, it is good. For him to be centered on his own glory means he holds up nothing less than the best for every heart to enjoy. He holds up himself. He loves you too much to give you anything less than the best. And the best is if you ask God, give me the best, what's he gonna give you? Himself, he's gonna hold up himself in his own Glory, this is good. This is precisely what he is doing in Judges chapter 14 and verse four. He was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Why? 
Why? Read the rest of the verse. Because at that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. And they were fine with it, but God was not. He will not leave his people to condemnation and a subpar satisfaction. He, he will not leave his people to condemnation no matter how comfortable they are there. No, he won't let us snuggle up with sin no matter how much we think it's gonna satisfy. And throughout this chapter, we see him break into this story again and again and again in order to seek an opportunity against the Philistines to, to break his people apart from the marriage to them and bring them back to him Self, he, he, Samson, throughout the story, Samson thinks that he is just using his strength to save himself, but God is sovereignly at work to save his people and set them free. Like every step along the way, we see God empowering and escalating the conflicts caused by Samson. Like, like things go from Samson fighting one lion to 30 Philistines to 300 foxes to more and more Philistines until both nations get involved. Like you see God empowering these actions, escalating their consequences in order to cause this national crisis to save his people, set them free from the rule that the Philistines have over them. God is sovereignly accomplishing his salvation for his glory, yes, and his people's good. He is the self-centered, selfless Savior. Shades, do you see him? Do you see him? Samson doesn't. Even at the end of these chapters, when we see him call on the Lord, he's still not seeing God for who he is. He calls on the Lord just because he's thirsty. And still, look how God answers. Look at the contrast between these two saviors. Samson, who's calling out for salvation just for himself. I'm going to die of thirst. And God, who responds. Look at verse 19. And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. What grace. What a, what a picture of grace, God selflessly pouring out himself for our satisfaction. Samson, the self-centered savior, I just wanted to save myself from my thirst. God, the self-centered, selfless savior, pouring himself out for our satisfaction. And when Samson drank, his spirit returned and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called In Hakor, which means the spring of him who calls. Not the spring of him who answers, because Samson's all about himself, his own glory. He's even going to name this act after his action. Samson, right here, serves as a warning for us. He's all about himself, his own glory, his own good. Matthew 16, 25 tells us exactly where such a self-centeredness leads. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And that's what's going to happen to Samson. He serves as a warning to all of God's people of what it looks like to get comfortable with the enemy, to embrace self-centered morality, to not take sin seriously, and to be blind spiritually. But 
Praise God. Judges 14 and 15 aren't just a warning shade. They're also a witness because they are not ultimately about Samson and all his weaknesses. No, these chapters ultimately bear witness to God and the sovereign strength of his grace. He is sovereign. That's what we've seen right here. He's sovereign even over Samson's sin, using it to bring about his salvation. Is that not precisely what we see at the heart of what we believe? At the cross. At the cross, is not God sovereign over sin right there at the cross, using it to bring about so great a salvation? For there, at the cross, the greatest judge, Jesus, came as our Savior. He represented us, his people. Not like Samson, who embodied the people's sin. No, Jesus was free from sin. So he was free to take on our sin, to bear it in his body, like Israel bound Samson and handed him over to the Philistines. We bound Christ and handed him over to the enemy, who he defeated by selflessly, sacrificially dying. He, Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, was torn apart so that out of his death could come this living community we call the church, pouring forth the sweetness of the gospel into the world. Oh, shades, do you see? You see, this is not about you and me. This is about Jesus, the self-centered, selfless Savior who gave himself up for his glory and our good. He made us right in his eyes. There is, there is no greater salvation for there is no greater Savior. And no Samson ever can frustrate or get, a, or get in the way of God's purposes of salvation. Like when you look around at the, at the state of the world, at the state of the church, don't you fear that? That like there are those who are getting in the way or who can frustrate even leaders or preachers or pastors or teachers or whoever can get in the way and frustrate the plans of God? No, shades, no Samson ever can frustrate or get in the way of God's purposes. Take comfort in that. And also take comfort in the fact that no Samson ever is beyond God's salvation. Like I don't care if you've spent your whole life trying to be your own savior. Matthew 16, 25 does say, whoever would try to save his own life will lose it, but it goes on to say, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's an invitation. And it's, a, it's an invitation for you as well. Like, like, I don't care if you see in Samson a perfect reflection of yourself. If you're like, yeah, I'm comfortable with the enemy, check. I've got a self-centered morality. I, I don't take sin seriously. I, I feel like I am blind spiritually. I, I don't care if you see in Samson a perfect reflection of yourself. See in Jesus a perfect reflection of your salvation. He has given himself for you. You can be saved from, from being centered on yourself to being centered on him, Jesus, the self-centered, selfless Savior. Amen.